That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of the warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. When you hear that sound, it means you are in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, and I do this podcast because I was one mile from the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island when the accident happened there in 1979. Trust me, you don't want to have anything like that happen to you, and I don't want it to happen to you either. Later in the podcast, we'll get an up-close-and-personal debunking of the NRC and Southern California Edison whitewash of San Onofre. This is going to be with Ray Lutz, an engineer and activist who's been deeply involved in the entire San Onofre issue. Today is Tuesday, July 24, 2012, 500 days since the Fukushima tragedy began on March 11 of 2011, and here is the latest nuclear news. To start out with, U.S. nukes are in hot water, and I mean that literally. It was so hot last week, the Braidwood Twin Unit Nuclear Power Plant in Braceville, Illinois, had to get special permission to continue operating after the temperature of the water in its cooling pond rose to 102 degrees. When it was new, the plant had permission to run as long as the temperature of its cooling water pond, a 25-acre lake in a former strip mine, remained below 98 degrees. In 2000, it got permission to raise the limit to 100 degrees. Braidwood got permission from the ever-cooperative Nuclear Regulatory Commission to continue operating last week when its cooling water hit 102 degrees, even though the plant is supposed to shut within six hours if the lake's temperature exceeds 100. Protecting people and the environment, indeed. The day after that situation at Braidwood, four nuclear plants in the U.S. East Coast were shut down. This is as of Wednesday, July 18. Constellation Nuclear Energy Group's Nine Mile Point nuclear reactor in New York was one of them. Another was a unit at Exelon's Limerick nuclear plant in Pennsylvania. More on that one in a moment. Constellation Nuclear's Unit 1 at the Calvert Cliffs nuclear plant in Maryland. And North Carolina-based Duke Energy's Unit 1 at the Okani nuclear plant in South Carolina. Despite the shutdown of the four giant nuclear reactors, Power systems delivered the juice needed by the region's homes and businesses to keep air conditioners humming on the last day of a brutal heat wave, which raises the question, why do we need these nuclear plants in the first place? And now more on that Limerick power plant. Exelon, the parent company of the Limerick, Pennsylvania nuclear power plant, stated that an explosion had occurred, causing an unusual event in Unit 1. But the event did not pose any threat to the public. That's their quote. An Exelon company spokesman said the electrical disturbance caused a loss of power to the generator cooling equipment. This is not an explosion like you would normally think, said a senior public affairs officer for the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission stationed in Pennsylvania. It's more like when your house trips a circuit. Now listen to this run-on sentence by that same official. It's my understanding that the company is working to better understand what happened and why it happened and to fix whatever needs to be fixed and prevent a recurrence, and the NRC inspectors will be observing their activities during that time. (sighs) Hopefully the NRC inspectors will actually be inspecting as opposed to just picking their noses and scratching their scrotums. In Japan, massive demonstrations are working to change perception there of the nuclear industry. According to Prime Minister Noda, nuclear energy is becoming an issue that divides the nation. You think? 
This is all because of the enormous size and regularity of the events. That's what's giving the government pause. According to an honorary professor of politics at the University of Tokyo, the current anti-nuclear rallies are different from the post-war ones against the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, which had an ideological and political agenda. Now, ordinary citizens are participating, and many of them just feel distrust and frustration with the government. A professor of media and communication studies at Kwansai Gaikun University said the large number of elderly people is cited as a key characteristic of the recent movement, with the belief that many of those who experienced World War II, and particularly the misery of atom bombs, are now participating in this movement. For the first time since the Fukushima tragedy began 500 days ago, Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, has begun work to remove unused nuclear fuel from the storage pool of the number four reactor. That's the bulging, leaking, fire-damaged building of the number four reactor. Full-scale work to remove that fuel is not expected until December of 2013, 18 months from now. Japan's central government stated on Thursday, July 19, that it would approve of TEPCO's electricity rate increase by as much as 8.47%. This comes just days after a Consumer Affairs Agency panel called for a decrease in salaries before a price increase for consumers. The company was also condemned for passing along the costs of last year's nuclear disaster to its customers. After 500 days, Fukushima number 1 plant is still not out of the woods. TEPCO workers are still unable to accurately grasp what the situation is within the pressure vessels. Due to the high temperature and high humidity, cables connected to the thermometers are on the verge of breaking. Half of the 36 thermometers on the pressure vessel of the number 2 reactor are not displaying accurate temperatures. Meanwhile, according to calculations by TEPCO, a total of about 10 million becquerels per hour of radioactive cesium are still being emitted from a combination of reactors number 1, 2, and 3. This is as of June. Since February, the level of radiation emitted from the reactors has remained unchanged and at that very high and dangerous level. The Asahi Shimbun a publication in Japan, has discovered that workers at the crippled Fukushima number 1 nuclear power plant were ordered to cover their dosimeters with lead plates to keep radiation doses low enough, or seeming to be low enough, to continue working under dangerous conditions. Some of the workers refused the orders, and others raised question about their safety and the legality of the practice. But the man in charge, who has not been named, but is a senior official of a subcontractor used by TEPCO, warned that they would lose their jobs and any chance of employment at other nuclear plants if they failed to comply. The pocket-sized dosimeters sound an alarm when they detect high radiation levels. The workers themselves had to build lead covers that would prevent the radiation from reaching the dosimeters. They were told by the foreman, unless you use a lead shield on your dosimeter, you can no longer work when the dose is up. And as we just heard, there is no time when the dose is not up at Fukushima. Internationally, we turn to Russia, which is acting responsibly towards monitoring the radiation threat from Fukushima. Nearly 300 cars contaminated by last year's radioactive leak were stopped by customs officials at the Russian-Japanese border. The head of Russia's consumer rights organization said a 24-hour monitoring of all imports and radiation control were immediately introduced at the country's far eastern border. 
After March of 2011, the Russian government announced that all seafood produced on Kamchatka Peninsula would be checked for radiation, and they also monitored migratory birds for radioactive contamination. This week, Russia announced that a new surveillance boat will monitor radiation on the Kamchatka Peninsula, keeping up a higher level of monitoring for radiation than we have here in the United States. This report out of Canada asking, are fish from the Pacific Ocean and Japanese coastal and inland waters safe to eat 16 months after the Fukushima nuclear disaster? Governments and many scientists say that they are. But the largest collection of data on radiation in Japan fish tells a very different story. In June of this year, 56% of Japanese fish catches tested by the Japanese government were contaminated with cesium-137 and 134. 9.3% of the catches exceeded Japan's official ceiling for cesium. Radiation levels remain especially high in many species that Japan has exported in recent years to Canada and by extension to the United States. These species include cod, sole, halibut, carp, trout, and eel. The numbers show that far from dissipating with time, as government officials and scientists in Canada and elsewhere claim they would, Levels of radiation from Fukushima have stayed stubbornly high in fish. In June of 2012, the average contaminated fish had 65 becquerels of cesium per kilo. That's much higher than the average of 5 becquerels per kilogram found in the days after the accident back in March of 2011. Now, the reason for that is that cesium from Fukushima at that point had not spread widely through the region's food chain as it has now. Doing this kind of monitoring is a fundamental responsibility of governments, said Vancouver Dr. Erica Frank, who is also a past president of the Nobel Prize-winning U.S. group Physicians for Social Responsibility. I think it's important to ask purveyors of Pacific food where it comes from. A logical question we should be able to ask with the expectation that we're going to get an answer. In the United States, San Onofre is again making headline news. In a stunning report, nuclear safety regulators have found that the operator of the San Onofre nuclear power plant did not mislead the government about changes to replacement steam generators that leaked radiation and have sidelined the plant for nearly six months so far. The NRC on Thursday, July 19, announced that Southern California Edison provided, quote, all the information required under existing regulations about proposed design changes to its steam generators prior to replacing them in 2010 and 2011. They put the blame on faulty computer modeling and manufacturing issues. They stopped just short of saying the dog ate it. California energy officials are now preparing for the possibility that San Onofre could be offline through 2013 or 2014, while at the same time, Southern California Edison is putting forth the proposition that they restart one of their reactors in September at 70% power and run it for six months just to see what's going to happen. Well, we thought it was time to get an expert in to comment on all of these changes, and I have one I interviewed him from his home in San Diego. My guest today is Ray Lutz. He has a background as an engineer with a master's in engineering. He served as the national coordinator for Citizens Oversight Project, and he has been actively involved in the San Onofre issue, especially since the problems with the steam generators emerged earlier this year. Ray, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. 
Uh, thank you, Libby. Appreciate being here. First of all, give us a sense as to how you became involved in the whole nuclear issue. Well, I had followed this throughout my, you know, being a student as an engineer and throughout my uh, engineering career, all the things that were coming out about the different disasters and um, how, you know, the big question is is whether human beings can, can handle this type of complex machine. When I was first um, going into at college, the Navy did court me to work as a nuclear reactor operator aboard a submarine. I didn't do that, but I, I did find it interesting to tour the submarine and, and see, you know, have their lunch and, <laughs> and see what was going on there. But uh, as a result, I did stay interested in the nuclear energy issue, even though it isn't my uh, focus as an engineer. I'm an electronics and electrical engineer, but those things are very tightly woven because the nuclear Power systems are actually electricity electricity generators, so so it's very much similar to what I'm in. Bring us up to date. Nuclear Hot Seat has been following San Onofre. Give us a brief summary of what the problem was uh, that showed up in January. Let's not go into what's happened since the press releases came out last week. Yeah, well, if you look at this, it's very interesting because uh, surprisingly enough, Edison put out a very lengthy journal article published in January of this year, and it actually was probably written in October because you have to do them in advance of when they're published. The engineers who worked on the steam generators, uh, I believe also the ones uh, at Mitsubishi as well as the ones at Edison, went into great detail as to how proud they were of this work that they had done. And Meaning the re-engineering of the steam pipes to put more pipes in than it was originally designed for. Yeah, and, and they had a, a mention in there that there was a premise, the major premise of the project was to avoid NRC approval of the work. And, and in other words, they, they didn't want to go through a license amendment process, public review, NRC review, and all of that, which probably would have taken 18 months and been uh, and would have cost them a little bit more, but in the end would have avoided, maybe avoided this this problem. You would hope that it would have. Um, and it probably, you know, what probably would have happened had they gone through that is the public would have said no to, to everything, and they would have said decommission at that time. So they, they desperately did not want to open up that can of worms. So this report that came out from the engineers, this was an attempt at forestalling any criticism or any – this was even before the problems with the steam generators showed up? Yeah, that's the funny thing. It was actually before anything happened, and the engineers – were very proudly talking about everything that they had done, even uh, all of the redesign that they had done internal to the steam generators. They changed so much, and it was supposed to be under the 50.59 rule, which states uh, that it's one of the uh, one of the regulations that states that uh, if they do a change out like this, that um, then it would have to be form, fit, and function identical to what they were replacing, and normally. As you can imagine, uh, you know, if you replace something small, like a, a light bulb or a light switch or something, as long as it's about the same, you're fine. But this is a massive part of this reactor. It is, you know, there's two steam generators on each reactor, and each one is like 70 feet tall, weighs hundreds of tons. It's a, it's a, it's almost like a, a whole half of the reactor, like they, they changed out half of it. Maybe a, you could argue a third of it. So it's a huge part. And when you're changing out, it's such a huge part of it, you can't go by just what the outside envelope 
uh, looks like. It'd be like saying, well, we're going to uh, give you a house that's the same, and the outline of the floor plan was the same, but they changed all the rooms and, and the plumbing and everything. It's not the same. So this is what they did, and they, they added tubes. They added 370 tubes to each one. They changed how they were bent at the top instead of being uh, having a sharp 90-degree bend followed by a straight part at the top and then going down. It was a U-bend, and they changed how it was all supported. It went on and on. This is a common problem, Libby. All of these reactors have steam generator problems. They all decay over time because it's a really violent area. You know, just look in the bottom of a tea kettle and see how violent that is down there. Um, if you start putting 10,000 tubes down there and expect them not to wiggle, uh, you're dreaming. They're wiggling all over. You've got bubbles of gas expanding at really high pressures. I'm just uh, thinking about the parallel if a car gets uh, a replacement part that is not the exact part or it's, it's like an aftermarket part but the fit isn't quite the same as one if it comes from the dealer, that right. it can create all kinds of problems with the mechanics of the car and it has to be tweaked and adjusted and tested. And that's just for a car, let alone one of these pieces of technology that have the potential to melt down and poison all of us and, you know, and, and destroy life. Yeah, so that, that, so they're, they're playing games with our lives. So we have a pretty good picture of the problem that started to come to awareness with the shutdown on January 31st, which is when there was a break in a pipe and there was a radiation release um, from the reactor. And it was a short time later that the report came out of all this additional damage and the clogging of the tubes in uh, the other reactor. And so San Onofre has been shut down since then. But, of course, there's been a lot of politicking to by SCE to try and get it back online. Last week... On July 19th, there was a uh, press release issued by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Basically, the NRC signed off on all of the changes. What it said in the press release is that, quote, the commission report states that the steam generator design changes were appropriately reviewed in accordance with the 10 CFR 50.59 requirements, which govern design changes between original and replacement steam generators, noting that the changes at songs, I hate that, it means San Onofre, are common in replacement generators today. The report also stated that with the exception of the wear found at the tube retainer bar locations, the wear related to support structures is similar to wear found at other replacement steam generations after one cycle of operation. How comforted should we be by this announcement by SCE and the NRC? Oh, well, it's completely ridiculous. This is a classic case of cover your ass where the uh, regulatory agency being the NRC should have been reviewing this much more carefully than they were, and they did not. And and so uh, now it's come to light that, gee, we have all these problems, and indeed they should have caught these earlier, but now they can't go back and say that they were wrong because then they would have to admit to doing this wrong the whole time. That's unfortunate because no one is willing to say that anyone is wrong here. I was given the example of a Sandusky case where Penn State would not admit to, to it for a long time. Even though everybody knew something was going on, they would not blow the whistle because they didn't want to be shown that they knew about this before. This is the same kind of thing where the NRC does not want to say, oh, we were asleep at the wheel and we did not enforce these regulations. There's no way that all of the changes inside these steam generators is compliant with a form, fit, and function type of uh, rule, which is the 50-59 rule. There's no way. Now, they can go on and try to justify it, 
but it, it is not the case. So the hearing in San Juan Capistrano, which happened on June 18th, they went into what they were going to call the root cause. What was the root cause of this? And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission said that the root cause was excessive steam velocity inside these steam generators. So in other words, the steam that is used to cool the reactor was moving too fast? You know, it's the water on the outside of the tube. So if you can imagine, there's really high-pressure water flowing through these almost 10,000 fairly small three-quarter of an inch diameter tubes. And then there is water flowing on the outside of those tubes getting heated up and turning into the steam. And then the steam flows across these tubes in steam bubbles that are expanding and very violently pushing on the tubes, and that causes the tubes to wiggle around and rub against each other, and that's what caused these holes. Well, they had changed the dynamics of this, and I found an article in a publication, I think it was in the Orange County Register, in January prior to the leak that was talking about how they were changing out the turbines because they put in turbines that would handle more steam, and in that article, it said that these steam generators were going to be developing and producing more steam so that they could produce 31,000 homes worth of energy from these same, this same reactor. In other words, 31,000 additional homes. In other, words, in other words, they were revving up the engine. They were revving it up, and they were doing it without approval. In other words, they were saying everything is the same as it was before, but it <laughs> but we'll make more money by putting you more at risk. They look the same from the outside. They have all the same dimensions. But in reality, they had, had basically supercharged the steam generators to produce more steam. So yeah. let's get back to this hearing that took place in San Juan Capistrano. Um, yeah. This was between the NRC and the public and SCE, or who was there? It was mainly the Nuclear Regulatory Commission giving sort of an informal report to the public about what was going on. They had not published their written report yet, and they also had Southern California Edison sitting there to answer questions, and uh, they did actually try to answer the questions, but they, they only answered them so far. One of the questions that's, that was a key question to this whole meeting is, what was the cause of this radioactive leak and this tube degradation that occurred? And they said the reason, the root cause, was because of excessive steam velocity. But <laughs> that's stopping before you're actually getting to the answer, because that's like saying who killed JFK and saying it was a bullet. You want to know who pulled the trigger. And so you have to work your way back to where did the bullet come from, where was the gun, and so forth. In this case, the steam velocity, where did the steam come from? It was the steam generator that had been modified. When did that happen? It happened when Southern California Edison and, and the Mitsubishi engineers redesigned it so substantially that it had no relation to the other design. And and this is why it happened, but they did not want to say that. And also, it, it, it skirts around the culpability of the NRC in not protecting people in the environment, but giving a rubber stamp to Southern California Edison. Exactly. And, and this is why, just prior to that meeting, uh, we had Friends of the Earth do a press conference about their request to become an intervener because they're claiming that the uh, NRC and Edison, you know, that this was a violation basically of the 5059 rules, what it comes down to. You're allowing the operator of these uh, power plants to replace things as long as they're the same as they were before, but with maybe 
some uh, minor changes. Like, for example, in this case, they should have been able to change just the type of steel alloy that they use for the tubes because then the design would be the same and they were just saying, well, this type of steel is going to last longer. That would be something that would be appropriate. But when you start changing all of the design of the inside of the steam generator, uh, adding tubes, changing the support structure, changing the, the actual design of how the tubes bend, all of these things would allow more hot water from the nuclear core to come through faster and go around that nice U-bend faster. And so you're getting the whole thing to run hotter. And it's running hotter and developing more steam bubbles and then shaking the whole thing even more. And this is why it is rattling itself to bits. So they're, they're, they're really, and this is the danger of this thing. You've got profit, you know, pushing everybody to the limit on one side. And there's almost nothing on the other side pushing back and say, you've got to make it safe. So in you other know? words, it's like the inmates are in charge of the asylum. That the, that the nutballs down uh, at Southern California Electric and dealing with San Onofre are saying, we'll do whatever we want to in order to increase profits, not thinking about safety, and the NRC is going, blah, 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 I guess that's okay, and letting them get away with it. Yeah, the NRC, you know, these are mostly people from the industry that have been revolving toward into positions in, into the NRC, and, and they tend to want to go along and, and you know, it's been a big problem because they've had all these regulations, but they never enforce them. They never – I think it was 1999 was the last time they actually fined somebody. And what they do is they say, well, um, the rule is that you can't keep that thing for longer than, say, 20 years, whatever the thing is. And the, the operator will say, well, it's not rusted too much. It's still holding pretty well. Uh, why don't you change your regulation to 15? instead of saying that we have to replace it, and they keep doing this. And so the regulations really mean nothing after a while. In this case, the 50-59 rule has been abused so much that it, it, mean, it means nothing. Like, wh when is it that you will say that it's not form, fit, and function the same? The, what the NRC just said in their press release was they followed all the regulations and that all of these changes inside of this, this steam generator were okay and form, fit, and function Oh, all right. And the reality is that can't be true because if it was form, fit, and function identical, it would have lasted 40 years, which is what the old ones were, you know, intended to last. They lasted 25 years. It would have lasted 25 years. Instead, as opposed to less than two years, they're showing the they're showing the signs of wear. Only 11 months in one case, and and this was only halfway through the first fueling period, and the other the other ones lasted like 15 or 16 fueling cycles. This one is only halfway through the first fueling cycle and is always already breaking. It is completely inconceivable that this steam generator is form, fit, and function the same. What I'd like to do is is move this on because there's a whole other piece, and this came out in a press release that, interestingly, was it seems to have been released on the 22nd of July, which is a Sunday, which is not a usual day for a major press release to go out. But in this release, it is said that Edison plans to apply to the NRC in September to restart one of the two generators at 70% capacity for a six-month trial period. How good an idea is this? None of this is a good idea. You know, let's say that my point of view is that these none of these nuclear reactors can be run safely, period. They're way too complex. There are so many things that can go wrong. And the concept that we can plan and basically run these things safely 
I have no confidence in that at all. And I'm an engineer who knows how to, to look at these things. They say, yeah, we statistically this is okay and so forth, but really this is what they found in Japan. They constantly fudge the statistics. They constantly work things for profit, and that's why, mainly, I don't have any confidence because there isn't enough oversight by the NRC. But in this case, let's get more detailed about what's going on. You have the number two and number three reactors in there a little bit different in how they've worn out. The number three reactor is the one that's further to the south, and it's the one that had this actual pinhole leak. They say it didn't leak very much. Yeah, well, it leaked about 75 gallons a day, about as much as a, a bathtub of uh, radioactive water, which was emitted into the air, into the environment. And they say that isn't very much, but it sounds like a lot to me. Okay, You know, so, no radiation is safe. There's no limit below which it is safe to be exposed to radiation. And there are assurances that it is insignificant. It's one of the nuclear industry's favorite words to just say, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, where the man behind the curtain is glowing from the radiation. What can people, especially those of us who live in proximity with San Onofre and are outraged by this, what can we do to help support the work that you and the other fine activists down in Orange County are currently engaged in? There's a couple of different dimensions that we can work in here. One of them is really been productive, and that is to go to the various city councils and talk to your representatives and get them more interested in this, and this is still ongoing. If you have time uh, and the inclination to go to a, a city council meetings and and start talking to them about this, go up, put in your speaker slip, and take your three minutes and talk about your concerns about this uh, reactor. And I must say that uh, what, what I didn't quite finish on that number three, if they restart it, it could shake itself to bits, even though they think it won't and then we could have a meltdown. So it's very, very dangerous. I don't want to see them do that. So that's the one dimension is going to these various city councils and representatives calling the all the different levels, state, federal, everybody that's your representative, and make sure they know your feelings about this because power companies have a lot of influence, and we need to have a lot more people coming forward. The other thing is the experience of the power companies have to do with these various hearings and so forth, where they can keep the public pretty much under control and on their own term. Whereas the rallies that we've had at the plant, which we're not planning to have them that close to the plant anymore, but we are going to be having actions such as rallies and the like. And let me give you an example. We uh, went to the Sempra headquarters here in San Diego. Sempra being the energy company that's involved with San Onofre? Well, it is one of the three, yeah. Okay. It is owned by Southern California Edison to about 80% and Sempra Energy, which is the parent of Southern uh, San Diego Gas and Electric, and they own 20%, and Riverside owns a very small fraction, like 1%. And so the, these, this Sempra Energy, they should be concerned, we think, because they're not really in control of this thing. They have to take the decisions that, Southern California Edison has taken on this, and they should be concerned about, and there's, there's rate payers especially, which are going to be on the hook for this thing. And so we sent a letter, put a letter, you know, delivered it to the door and tried to, uh, and of course they had all of their um, reinforcements out there. But what this does is it puts it puts sort of a shock through their whole organization because they're not used to these people rallying outside their door 
about what they're doing wrong, and they hate that. You know, these organizations spend millions of dollars to try to boost their public image. They have whole departments to do this. And so when there's something like this that happens, even a small thing, it can damage so much work that they've done to try to boost their – so they hate these things. And um, it puts a chill to their own whole organization because they have to say, don't talk to the people out there. Exit through the back door. <laughs> you know, all of these different changes. And it, it's strange because it's hard to really uh, identify what – does it, but I think it's a combination of all of these different tactics together, both speaking at public meetings like city council meetings, for example, or the public rallies, which I think have been very effective. It's just that we need actually more people to show up. So if people want to become involved with some of these demonstrations, be it December Energy or SCE or others that are being evolved, other tactics that are being evolved, how can they join with you? Uh, well, we have a website that's uh, shutdownsananofre.org. Um, you can go there, and there's some contact information. Make sure you get on an email list. There's also Facebook and other resources that are fairly easy to get involved in. And once you get hooked into the social media or these email lists, you'll be getting information about when we're going to be doing something. And it's very important to be ready uh, kind of at a moment's notice because some of these things – uh, we have to do them pretty quickly, and we just need people to show up. They had 15,000 people at the rallies in 1980s against San Onofre, and we haven't seen 15,000 people in our rallies recently. <laughs> and if we had 15,000, trust me, we would have a lot of media coverage and a lot more traction on our position than we would with only – maybe a few hundred, you know, if we have 500 people at a rally, that's pretty good. But it's not 15,000. Right, and it's not what's happening in Japan, which is 175,000 people at a rally. Right. So, what, so if, again, if people want to get on your social media, where would they go for that? On Facebook, it's, it's Shut San Onofre, and then you will be getting updates. But also, if you go to... Uh, citizensoversight.org is my website. Uh, you can send an email to me, Ray Lutz at citizensoversight.org. Uh, I will make sure that anybody who contacts me will be on the list and you will be getting uh, the information about what we're going to be doing next. And you can join in and, and say this is a good idea or have some other um, ideas about what, what would work. We're always interested in that. Um, and that that's the way to do it. And any any person, I don't care how little bit you want to uh, be involved, even just show up at one of the rallies, that's all you got to do is just be there, and your body is a vote. Ray, I want to thank you for being such a font of information on this, and also for all the good work that, that you and Gene Stone and Donna Gilmore and uh, uh, Gary and, and, and his wife are doing down there um, in set, to focus attention on San Onofre and not leave up on the pressure. It's so important for all of us. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Libby. I really like your show is great. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Ray Lutz uh, has a master's in engineering. He's been national coordinator for Citizens Oversight Project. And as you can hear, he has been actively involved in the San Onofre issue, especially since the problems with the steam generators emerged earlier this year. And we will keep in touch with you to find out what's going on next. Thanks, Ray. With the holistic healing and radiation protection tips this week, 
I want to remind you that this information is offered as information and education only and is not intended to be a recommendation of foods to eat or supplements to take. For that, you need to receive guidance from a doctor, nutritionist, or other licensed professional. As you can tell, I have seen my professional attorney in the last week, and this is what I need to say. Nucleotides are building blocks or subunit molecules that make up RNA and DNA, which carry your genetic code. Nucleotides also carry out several essential functions needed for cell replication and perform the following functions in your body. They neutralize toxins, increase cellular metabolism, increase the production of cellular energy, improve the response and efficiency of the immune system, enhance the effects of antioxidants, and increase the body's ability to heal and repair. If you want to help RNA and DNA repair, and post-radiation exposure would be one such instance where you would want to do this, it makes sense to include foods in your diet that contain abundant levels of nucleotides. So if this makes sense to you, you might want to consider eating lots of sea algae, like chlorella and spirulina, liver, nutritional yeast, sardines, lentils, most beans, oysters, anchovies, mackerel, and bee pollen. I wonder what they would do with that on Iron Chef America. Now, if you decide to eat any of these foods, make certain they come from clean sources, know where they were sourced, and when they were sourced before making your determination. Here's the final thought for today. Neurolinguistic programming, otherwise known as NLP, is a powerful system of using words to control and initiate listener and reader responses. The nuclear industry relies on NLP to misdirect our justifiable concerns into a don't-worry-be-happy mentality. But with awareness, you can spot the NLP imprints, see what the other side is trying to manipulate you into believing, and use that as a marker that things are worse than they are saying. I mean, why would they need to manipulate you if what they're saying is the truth? One piece of nuke industry NLP languaging is to look out for when there's a problem at a reactor and they use the phrase, an unusual event, which is immediately followed by the phrase, the lowest of four Nuclear Regulatory Commission emergency classifications. That is total NLP misdirection. As I've pointed out on Nuclear Hot Seat before, there is nothing as usual as an unusual event at a nuclear power plant. Last Wednesday alone, there were four of them. In your mind, when you hear pro-nukers use the word unusual, substitute the word commonplace or usual, and you'll be closer to the truth. As for the next phrase, the lowest of four Nuclear Regulatory Commission emergency classifications, keep in mind, they're talking about an emergency at a nuclear power plant. There's a problem at a nuclear reactor. By referring to it as the lowest classification, our mind goes to, eh, it's no big deal. I want you to hear this. It's a big deal. Level 1 is only three levels away from level 4, otherwise known as kiss your ass goodbye. So don't discount the seriousness of a problem at a nuclear plant just because the press releases and public relations manipulators and even the media use soothing, misdirecting language. Look through the bullshit and realize, if they were honest, 
they be saying that they're scared too, and with good reason. After all, they can use all the NLP they want, but it won't protect them from radiation releases or other problems at a nuclear power plant any better than it will protect you. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 24, 2012. You can find us posted on NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the blog page to get this podcast and all of the others. You can find us on Facebook on the Nuclear Hot Seat pages or on iTunes Podcasts where you can subscribe for free. Share the link and forward the downloads. And if you have thoughts on how to improve Nuclear Hot Seat, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep. Be safe, be well, and I'll speak with you again next week.